Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Chris Terracone. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Michael Barrison, who is charged with the attempted murders of Lauren Kanarek and Robert Goodwin in Long Valley, New Jersey. Kanarek was struck in the chest by two bullets from Barrison's weapon, and as it was undisputed that Barrison fired those shots, his legal team argued that he was not guilty because he was legally insane at the time of the shooting, and in the alternative because he fired those shots in self-defense. In our last episode, we continued our review of the testimony of Dr. Stephen Simring, the key defense expert witness who offered evidence supporting the claim that the defendant is not guilty by reason of insanity. On today's installment, we conclude our look at the defense's direct examination of Dr. Simring. That's all coming up right after the break. We ended our last episode late on the morning of April 6, 2022 with Judge Stephen Taylor, unprompted by prosecutors, interrupting the defense questioning of psychiatrist Dr. Stephen Simring and calling for a sidebar. Blinkus had been asking the witness about some of the information that appeared to be fueling Michael Barrison's escalating paranoia. After the sidebar, defense attorney Edward Belinkus continues his questioning of Dr. Stephen Simring, focusing again on social media posts by Lauren Kanarak. Doctor, with, with regards to your testimony concerning increased danger, was that Michael Barrison's impression of what was going on? Yes. Now, I'm going to show you uh, four posts. Defense Exhibit 200A, 83, A81, 900E6, and 900E7. I'm going to ask you to take a look at these. Are these four postings from Lauren Canarac postings that you specifically talked to Michael Barrison about? Again, I'm looking at dates. Yes, these are loosely called Manifesto 1, 2, 3, and 4. I suppose. Who, ga who gave them that terminology? Lauren Canarek. Now, with regards to these posts and your discussions with Michael Barrison, can you tell the jury how these specific posts affected his mental state? He believed all this stuff. As Ms. Canarek was gaslighting him, he believed it. And uh, although many of the things of these posts I find fantastic, he believed it, and he believed it literally. And he believed that all of these things presented a danger to him and to his family. And with each post, it turned up the screws and made him more anxious and more panicky. Did you discuss with Michael Barrison why he left his residence and started living in the stables? Yes. Um, it was sort of a complex story, but apparently a report had been made to the town inspection facilities uh, reporting on unsafe conditions within the dwelling. And there were two dwellings on there. And at that time, he was sharing one of the dwellings with Canarac and, and Goodwin. But there was a, uh, a report made, and it had to do with um, unsafe conditions. I never could get that exactly straight. There had been a burst pipe at one point. There was some question about how many people were living in the dwelling and if there was an adequate septic tank coverage for that. But whatever it was, the bottom line was, and Mr. Uh, uh, Goodwin, uh, Mr. Uh, um, uh, uh, Barrison believed that he had been reported to the town by Canarac and Goodwin. Not sure who reported the town, but he believed Canarac and Goodwin did that. In any event, the town came and they enclosed the facility 
said it was uninhabitable until remediated, and he had to leave, as did Canarac and Goodwin. And they had to, fortunately, it was the middle of the summer, and they had to sleep outdoors while he remediated these problems. Okay, and can you describe what, if any, impact Barrison having to live outside had on his mental state? Most playing with his mind even more. He no longer could be in familiar surroundings. He was outdoors. Things are becoming increasingly strange and disorienting for him. On the day of the uh, incident, did you review any documents with regards to DCPP uh, coming to the farm area? I did. It's DCP and P. It's what DIFUS is called nowadays in New Jersey, basically Child Protective. Uh, apparently, a report had been filed with Child Protective that children, these were uh, children of um, Mary Haskins Gray, Mr. Barristow, not his children, but her children, who had visited the farm from time to time. And these documents made a report, an anonymous report, because these reports are always anonymous, that these children were in some kind of danger. And that was my understanding, that two, one or two representatives of D, DCP and P, Division of Child Protective and Permanency, came down to visit and wanted to question Mr. Barrison about these allegations of abuse of these children. Now, did you discuss that with Michael Barrison? I did. What, what did he specifically tell you with regards to that contact with DCPP? It was the final straw. What effect do you believe that had on Michael Barrison's state of mind? It was the final straw. Now, when you do an evaluation, Doc, can you explain to the jury how you come to what your opinion is. Well, evaluation is a formal exercise. Um, what you do is it starts with the review of records. And depending on the evaluation, the records could be really very brief, maybe one report, um, or they could be very lengthy, like in this case. So you spend, I spend a lot of time reviewing the records. So before I even meet the examinee, I'm familiar with the records. And records generally tend to be police reports, hospital records, medical records, investigation reports. There can be any kind of relevant records. This case was a little unusual because the bulk of the records were actually Facebook postings, largely from Lord Canrack. But background could be anything, could be military records, whatever the records are that is appropriate to what I'm examining somebody for. Past police records, past arrest records, I could give you a list of records. So I'll ask the attorney who retains me, whether it's a defense lawyer or a prosecutor, please give me what's called the discovery, all the records, so that I can become familiar with the facts of this, of this case. Once I do that, I schedule a meeting with the examinee and hold the meeting. It usually is two to three hours, sometimes, depending on the complexity of the case, followed up by other meetings. During the sessions with the examinee, I take notes. And uh, the notes of my own notes, they look like this. They're handwritten notes. And uh, these are notes which are not, they're not opinions, but they're simply my impression, not my impressions, but what the person told me in response to questions. I then uh, put together the background and the notes and write a report. In this case, there was one single report dated August 17th, 2020, after all four five exams were done, and this report consists of 19 pages, and this contains my diagnosis and all of my findings. 
There are sometimes follow-up reports, especially when new material surfaces. But in this case, there was no follow-up report. There is the singular report of August 17th, and this contains all my opinions. Now, subsequent to the report, Mr. Um, Blinkus has given me other materials and more postings, but it was all more of the same. So there was nothing in the additional materials I saw that would cause me to write a revised report. A revised report would come if there was something really different or if something I said looked not to be accurate. So that's the process. In that report, then, I have a diagnosis, and I try to address the questions the lawyer put to me, namely, what was Mr. Barrison's state of mind at the time of this shooting? And that's it. Uh, I sometimes get called to testify in court about that, as I am today. Edward Wilinkis follows up on Dr. Simring's process for submitting a report with a question to the witness about his observations regarding sleeping patterns in the days leading up to the shooting. Did you review anything that would address uh, whether or not Michael Barrison was uh, sleeping leading up to this event? I'm sorry, that he had been sleeping before this happened? Sleeping or not sleeping. Oh no, he had terrible insomnia. If that's what, well, he, he, not just what I said, but there were all kinds of witnesses on there. Uh, his girlfriend, Mary Haskins, um, uh, Ruth Cox, who's a family friend, Larry Davidson, who's the man they had there, Jason, uh, what's his name, his assistant trainer, the young people who came forward who were training on the farm. There must have been at least 10 or 15 people who all said the same thing that Michael Barrison looked terrible in the last few days. This was not the Michael Barrison they knew, that he could barely get one foot in front of the other or get two or three words together, that he looked as if he hadn't slept. Several of these people, and not, not even interested people like his girlfriend, but just kids who were training on the farm, would comment that he looked terrible. Some of them thought that he was going to commit suicide. Some of them say he wasn't sleeping. He looked just horrible. And this was not the man they knew. They knew him as a uh, tall, rather heroic character, an Olympian, someone who was a leader, someone who trained them, and he had turned into, in their words, really a human wreck. In your report, did you discuss with Michael Barrison what he believed was going to happen to him uh, after DC PNP came to the farm? Well, yes, he was convinced the children would be taken away, the children would be harmed, the children would be taken away, and this was now on top of all the other fears that the horses would be harmed by uh, uh, Canarac and Goodwin, that Canarac and Goodwin would take away his farm, take away his possessions, destroy his reputation in the equestrian community. So in addition to all these other fears of what Canarac and Goodwin were going to do to him, all these fears which had been built up in his paranoia, there was now a brand new fear that had never been there before. That DP and DCP and P were going to take away Mary Haskin Gray's children. And that was the last straw. That could have been other last straws, but that was the thing that immediately precipitated his arming himself to defend himself, driving down and having the confrontation. And did he indicate to you what, if anything, he believed with regards to his personal safety and the safety of Mary Haskins. They were frightened to death. They, he thought that Goodwin and Canarac were going to kill him. In formulating your opinion, did any single document or statement control? No. 
No, it was the buildup of thousands and thousands of documents over a period of years and really coming to fruition in the last few months before the shooting itself. Did any single interview control uh, what your opinion uh, is here today? No, it, it did not. And, and everyone who tried to intervene was impotent to do so, whether it was Mr. Tarshish, his lawyer, his girlfriend, family members. No one seemed to be able to get through to him as he became increasingly down the, let's say, the rabbit hole of this abject fear that Goodwin and Canarac were going to destroy him. What are your opinions that you formed reviewing everything in its entirety? Mr. Barrison, in my opinion, has two diagnoses to a reasonable degree of medical probability. And diagnoses are taken from what's called the DSM-5, which is the fifth edition of the Diagnostic Manual of the American Psychiatric Association. It's not a textbook, but it's a uniform set of criteria by which doctors will agree on diagnoses. So the first diagnosis is delusional disorder, delusional disorder, and the second diagnosis is persistent depressive disorder. Can you explain to the ladies and gentlemen and the jury what a delusional disorder is so we can understand? All right, there are, there are, these are two very different diagnoses, and really in psychiatry, somebody can have two diagnoses just like in internal medicine, you can have diabetes and asthma. The fact that you have one doesn't preclude the other. So people often have multiple diagnoses, and he has two. Delusional disorder, and the specific type is persecutory type, is the unreasonable belief to a delusional, unrealistic point of view that you are being conspired against, harmed, poisoned, and destroyed. Now, little asterisks. There are other kinds of delusional disorders. There's delusional disorder jealous type. That's not what he has. Jealous type is where you think that your spouse is having some kind of relationship with something that's completely unfeasible. But this is the most common kind of delusional disorder is persecutory type. It is in some regards like schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is a well-known diagnosis of mental illness. It's the big daddy of mental illnesses. He does not have schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is someone is out of touch with reality, they're hearing voices, they're seeing things, they're hearing God talking to them, they are shouting, they're screaming, that's schizophrenia. Delusional disorder has only a piece of that, that in general his thinking is intact, in general he's not screaming, he's not seeing things, but there are islands of his thinking which are contaminated by delusional thinking. That is, everything that had to do with Lauren Canarat and her family and friends was, became delusional. He had unrealistic, outlandish beliefs about the things that she would do or could do to him, and no one was able to reason him out of it. That's what a delusional disorder is. A simple delusion is a false belief. Any of us can have a false belief that we have an enemy that wants to harm us. But usually when you talk to friends and family, and you look at evidence, you get talked out of the false belief, and you realize maybe the guy doesn't like you, but he's not going to kill you. When you have a delusional disorder, you don't get talked out of the false belief. The core false belief is that Lauren Canarac was going to annihilate him. He genuinely, in his bones, believed that, and did everything he could to try to protect himself against this delusion. So that's diagnosis number one. Diagnosis number two is persistent depressive disorder. This is really a chronic depression. 
despite his accomplishments, his bravado, the fact that he looked like a million bucks when he was in the Olympics or did dressage, is basically a depressed person. And this probably has to do with the abuse he sustained as a child on the part of his father that we know about from his therapist, the fact that he had two marriages that he couldn't sustain, the fact that although his life was professionally satisfying, there were parts of it which were marked by sadness and depression. Now, these two things are not related. He has a delusional disorder, which is a fairly uncommon condition, and he has a persistent depressive disorder, which is a very common condition. Do they meet the criteria in okay. helping? Judge, I'm going to object to the next question. I'll refrain, and if we can be heard at sidebar. Sure. Judge Taylor gives the jury a late morning break as he and the attorneys discuss the prosecution's objection. When the court is gaveled back into session, defense attorney Belinkus rephrases his question about the defendant's diagnosis so as not to lead Dr. Simring to an answer. Dr. Simring, uh, do you have an opinion to a degree of medical probability as to what uh, Michael Barrison's state of mind was at the time of the incident? Yes. What is it? He was psychotic and out of touch with reality. And was he delusional? Yes. Uh, psychotic actually means out of touch with reality. So psychotic and out of touch with reality is the same thing. There are different ways to be out of touch with reality. Specifically, he was delusional. He harbored a series of interconnected false beliefs which guided his thinking and his actions. And what did... The with those respect to those delusions, what did he believe was going to happen to him? He believed that Lauren Canarak and her associates had come up with an elaborate plan to destroy him and kill him. Is there anything else with regards to your opinion? And I refer to page 18, last paragraph. Just the second diagnosis of chronic depression, persistent depressive disorder. This has been observed by uh, his therapist, by other people in the past that there is an underlying depression. Did he know the difference between right and wrong? Uh, I'm sorry, could you? Did he know the difference between right and wrong? Are you talking at the time of the incident? The time of the incident. Time of the incident, he did not know. He thought he was acting in self-defense. Did he understand the nature and quality of his acts? Not clear. Nothing for After Edward Belinkus concludes his direct examination of Dr. Simring, he takes a moment to offer the jury limiting instructions on the nature and purpose of the psychiatrist's expert testimony, as well as how they as jurors should receive and process his answers to the questions posed by the attorneys. Members of the jury, before we get to cross-examination by Mr. Shellhorn, I do want to give you some, certain limiting instructions based on the testimony you just heard. Dr. Simmering, of course, was qualified as an expert witness. You've heard that charge from me twice already. You're going to hear it again at the end when I give my final charge to you, so I'm not going to repeat it a third time now and then have to do it a fourth time. I trust you will call that charge regarding uh, expert opinion and their ability to render their opinions uh, based on information provided to them. And in that regard, you have heard reference to alleged statements made by the defendant in the course of the psychiatric examination by Dr. Simmering. These are considered hearsay statements, but they are allowed in this circumstance. You should not consider these hearsay statements as substantive evidence relating to the guilt or innocence of the defendant or for the truth of the matter asserted by the defendant in the statement. 
Rather, I instruct you to consider these statements only for the limited purpose of explaining or supporting the conclusions reached by Dr. Simmering or for assessing the value of the doctor's opinions that are dependent or rely on the defendant's statements. Additionally, I believe you heard a reference from the doctor with regard to uh, the prior alleged criminal history of Lauren Canarac and Mr. Goodwin. Uh, you have heard testimony about a background check that was done by an investigator hired by the defendant. The prior criminal history is a purported one. It's unverified. The defendant alleges that this information had an impact on his mental condition. And the testimony was only admissible and to be only considered by you for this limited purpose of explaining or supporting the conclusions reached by Dr. Simmering or for assessing the value of the doctor's opinions that are dependent or rely on this information. Under our rules of evidence, a jury may consider a witness's criminal conviction in determining the credibility or believability of that witness. We are not here dealing with criminal convictions of Ms. Canarac or Mr. Goodwin. There are allegations of prior arrests. Those are not, under our rules, admissible with regard to the credibility of Ms. Canarac or Mr. Goodwin. And they were not admitted for that purpose. They are only admitted because of the impact that information may have had on the state of mind of the defendant when he received and reviewed that information. That is the only reason that evidence was admissible. It is not substantive evidence of the bad character of Ms. Canarac or Mr. Goodwin. It's not in any way admitted for that purpose and cannot be used by you in your deliberations for that purpose. The only relevance of the evidence is the extent to which you may find it affected the mental status or mental condition of the defendant. That's it. There was also testimony similarly about firearms and possession of weapons by Ms. Canarac, referred to during Dr. Simmons' testimony. Again, this information is admitted for a limited purpose, only as to the state of mind of the defendant and how it may have affected his state of mind. That information is not introduced because it may reflect in any way the bad character of Ms. Canarac. That's not the purpose of it. All right, it's only limited information, either explaining or supporting the conclusions of Dr. Simmering or for assessing the value of the doctor's opinions that are dependent or relied upon that information. All right, so with those limiting instructions, I'll charge you again later at the end of the case on the limits of evidence, but I wanted to do that now before cross-examination since you have heard the testimony from Dr. Simmering. And with that, we bring to a close this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Michael Barrison. Join us on our next installment as we begin our look at the prosecution's cross-examination of defense expert, psychiatrist Dr. Stephen Simring. If you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracon. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and the trial audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us. We hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Michael Barrison.